everyone. This is Rick Thomas. You're listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. Thank you so much for listening to these podcasts. I'm so grateful for all of you. This is episode 355. The title of it is The Response to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, episode 3. This will be my third review of the series put out by Christianity Today. Again, the series that they did is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, The Church Planted and Led by Mark Driscoll. The title of this episode that they did is You Read Your Bible? Ringo. My purpose in these reviews is not to restate what C.T. said about Mars Hill or Mark Driscoll, but I'm doing these reviews because they are so, so popular. So many people are listening to them, but rather than rehash or to go back into uh, that disaster that became Mars Hill and all the anguish and abuse and pain and frustration and anger and all the things that happened, the divisiveness, I, I don't want to talk about that per se. What I want to do is ask the question, I mean, these things, these episodes are out there and thousands upon thousands of people are listening to them. And so I think the most important question is what can we learn from this? Uh, we all have a church experience. We all have or had pastors in our lives and we've reacted well to them and maybe we have reacted poorly to them and maybe they did a good job and a not so good job. But whatever all that means to you, there are some things that we can learn from our experiences <clears throat> Excuse me, and if we don't learn, we're going to repeat the mistakes, and so that's really the big idea that I have in view here as I do this series. And so again, this is episode 355, Response to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, episode 3, and you can read my show notes here uh, in this episode. Also, if you have any questions that you want to ask, I would love for you to do that. Let me get into this review because I do have uh, several things that I want to uh, share with you. Again, the title of their episode, number three, is You Read the Bible, Ringo. Now, that is a quote from the gratuitously violent, vulgar movie, Pulp Fiction. I have not watched the movie, nor will I, but I did Google it to see where it came from, and I watched a three-minute gross clip where this quote was in there in a diner where a guy was about or pretending to uh, planning on shooting someone in the head with a pistol. And so it was just, well, anyway, so that's where it's from. Don't Google it. Don't watch the clip. If you're curious, you now know where it's from, so there's no need uh, to go there. You read the Bible, uh, Ringo. The key idea, however, in this episode number three is how and why to plan a local church and the type of person who does it. And so this series, uh, this talk that Mike Cosper with Christianity Today gave was mostly around the time, historically around the time of 2000-2001. Mars Hill Church planted in 1996, and so they, they were rooted at that point, and they were starting to grow. And so Mike 
is talking about the early plant, and of course, uh, Mark leading it, and then this particular episode talks about a transitional time uh, in the church. And anyway, uh, so that's what it's about. And so I think that there are some things that we can learn uh, from what Mike Hosper and Christianity Today presented, and so I want to share six of those things with you. But first, I do want to mention again my primary nitpick, and it is a growing nitpick as I continue to listen to this series, is that Mike continues to frame Reformed theology in a bad light. And in this episode, he does it again when he talks about Mark Driscoll coming out of the emergent emergent movement and becoming Reformed around 2000. And it conflates Mark's meanness with Reformed doctrine while not clarifying the awfulness of the emergent movement. And if you just listen to the podcast and you had no awareness of these movements and these labels and these ideas, uh, you would think that Mark kicked in a movement, the emergent movement, uh, to the curb. Uh, he did it in a mean-spirited way, and then he became reformed, and reformed is bad. It would be very easy to draw those conclusions. Now, he did kick the emergent movement uh, to the curb, and he did it in a typical Mark Driscoll way, in a mean-spirited, non-gentle way that was unnecessary and and uncalled for, and those things are true. But it's the conflation, because I don't want to stand Mark up as a representative of Reformed theology or Christianity, because there's too much objective evidence out there that would support uh, that this man has a lot of issues, a lot of sin problems that need to be uh, dealt with. But it's the conflation of Mark and Reformed doctrine that is so troubling that comes through this podcast. And then Mike uh, talks to some of their leaders in the emergent movement, like Doug Paget, And again, he presents them as victims. And maybe in a sense that is true uh, because those relationships were severed. And again, Mark uh, did it in a sinful way, the way that it was presented in this uh, podcast. But there is no negative critique about the movement that Doug was part of and why any sound believer would pull out, should pull out of the emergent movement. And then Mike continues and he mentions Doug Wilson as one of Mark's new mentors. Uh, Doug Wilson as, as representative A of Reformed Theology. Well, Doug Wilson is one of the most controversial individuals that CT could put forward. And so again, the novice Christian listening to this episode or the entire series up to this point might throw out everything connected to Mark Driscoll, specifically Reformed theology, because Christianity Today does a poor job of distinguishing the bad from the good. Now, perhaps they think they are distinguishing the bad from the good, but that would be because of what I've talked about in the previous two episodes. Their presuppositional starting point is social justice and a woke theology of sorts. And so they may not even see these connections and the conflation that they're doing, but it is quite evident as you listen to the podcast. And so that's my nitpick. Now I want to get into six things that we can apply to ourselves in the order uh, in which Mike 
presented them in uh, this podcast. And one of the things that he talked about earlier and one of the conclusions that you could draw is this idea of pastoral gifting. And when you think about pastoral gifting, I'm not sure how much time you've spent thinking about it. Perhaps you think that uh, all pastors are the same and, and the gifting is the same. And you can read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and say, this is the template, which is true. It is true from a classical sense, meaning from an academic sense, this is what Paul wrote, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, a pastor must have these qualities, but from an application sense, they are different. They will iterate differently from pastor to pastor. You see, pastoral gifting differs depending on the situational pastoral context, For example, if you are pastoring 100 people or 500 people or 5,000 people, it would require three different types of pastors. Some people don't have the gift mix and the skill level to pastor more than a, a certain number of people, 100 people in this illustration. And then others could pastor up to 500, and then maybe others 2,000 and uh, 5,000 people. This is what we do in our mastermind program and our our all online uh, biblical counseling school is we try to discern the ceiling of each student that comes to us because all ceilings aren't the same. Everybody can do biblical counseling, which is just a synonym for discipleship. Any Christian can do discipleship, but the ceilings are different for every Christian. And so all pastoral contexts are not the same. And then you'll have a rural uh, context or an urban context, which is what Driscoll had in Seattle, Washington. And so a pastor of 500 folks is not necessarily gifted to plant a church. He's the kind of individual that would come along after uh, the church is planted and the DNA is is really embedded into the culture of the church, and then he comes along and he takes it to a, another level. Also, a lead pastor and an associate pastor, they have two different gift mixes and personalities. One is a lead guy, while the other is a second guy. And so there are many ways to Uh, divvy this up. But my point here is that even though the template of what a pastor should be is very clear academically in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, 1 through 7, the application of that will be different, and each pastor will bring a unique gift uh, mix and skill set to to the pastoral context that they in that they're in and of course the key here is to make sure that you don't mismatch that you don't have the wrong individual in the wrong spot or in our case in our school that we don't put the the wrong discipler in the wrong position because that's where you end up hurting people now just in a vacuum if you look at the positive qualities of Mark Driscoll just set aside if you can do this uh, in your mind just set aside all of his bad character traits and just look at the positive qualities, I think you could say that he had the gift mix to plant a church. He had the courage. He had the uh, directiveness. He had the charisma to gather a group of folks and to plant a city church in uh, Seattle. He does seem to fit the role of a church planning 
planting pastor. He can round up the troops. He can take the hill. But if you want another type of person to pastor for 20 years, uh, to provide decades of soul care, uh, Mark Driscoll personality type and positive character qualities uh, are not really a good fit to pastor a church in the long term. And let's say if, you, if we could set aside all of his sinful qualities, uh, Mark could be you know, like an evangelist that uh, just plants churches and hands them off because he has the personality. I'm putting my best spin on, on who Mark Driscoll is. He has the personality type uh, to do that, but Mark doesn't come across as a good fit for long-term pastoral care. Of course, it's hard to tell because of all his sinful character traits, but in a vacuum, he seems to have the personality to plant a church. Now, the question for any of us, like say, who wants to be a pastor? I don't, but maybe you do. Uh, where is the best, best fit for us? Where's the best fit for you? What context? Or, or maybe you don't want to be a pastor, but you, where is the best fit for your personality type, your, your character qualities, your gift mix? Where is the best fit? Because here's the thing. We don't want to be mismatched. You don't want the wrong leader in a position of, of a church. And Mark could plant a church. I think he could, uh, just looking at the positive character traits that he has, uh, but doesn't seem doesn't come across as a person to do uh, 20 years soul care in that church. He, he could go and plant another. Of course, in his situation, you have the whole other issue of, of his sinful character qualities, which again, I'm, I'm well aware of. And so number one, a pastoral gifting in making sure that pastors aren't mismatched and put in the wrong place. Number two, they talked about a changing vision within Mars Hill Church. Some of the early church members did not have a mega church in view, which is fine. That's not a critique. They just thought this church is going to be XYZ, not ABC. They expected something else from what they eventually got. And I thought that was an interesting point. See, there seemed to be a misunderstanding about the progressive de development of a vision and an organization. Every organization has a, a progressive developmental process that goes through the entire uh, tenure of the organization. They have a progressive vision. They, what I'm saying is, is they continue to change. For example, when I began this ministry in 2008, this ministry here, I assumed that I would be counseling, just doing one-to-one -one biblical counseling or marriage counseling until I met Jesus, until I was 85, 95 years old, whenever I'm going to meet Jesus. That's what I assumed I was going to do in 2008. Well, here we are in 2021. And this ministry today, it doesn't look anything remotely close to what I thought the vision of the ministry was in 2008 and what I actually set out to do. And I say that because some of these early church members of Mars Hill Church, they didn't have a megachurch in view. They only saw what was in front of them and, and what they did not, what they misunderstood 
is the progressive development of a vision and an organization. You see, a church. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not making a. I'm not making a commentary on small church, large church. I'm not making a commentary on whether a mega church is good or bad. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying, a church should always be changing if the pastor and the people are changing. You see, the doctrine of progressive sanctification for the individual also applies to that local church pastor and that local body. Progressive sanctification teaches that we are growing, meaning when God regenerated me in 1984, that I'm going I'm, I'm to be so different in 2021 in the things that I believe and the things that I practice than I was in 1984. I mean, we're talking about a long time ago when God regenerated me, and if I'm not changing, then I'm probably not regenerated. And so progressive sanctification says that God will regenerate you. You are now born again, and you are a baby in Christ, and then you're going to grow up into mature manhood or womanhood. And you can read that. Peter talked about it. You can also read it in Hebrews chapter 5, specifically verses 12, 13, and 14, where we are to mature in our faith. That is progressive sanctification. Well, if you put a bunch of these people in a building and call that building uh, the location Mars Hill, well, then they're not going to stay the same. A church that never changes begs the question about the unique personal development of the leaders and also the constituency. If your church is the same as it was 20 years ago, then that is a red flag because if it's the same leader, because leaders are Christians, Christians mature, they get new ideas and new um, ways of thinking, they, they cast out old things, and they just mature and grow, and that's the idea of progressive sanctification. So I thought it was interesting that these, uh, of course, uh, the early church members were like me in this ministry. I did not have what I'm doing now in view at all. As I told people, I couldn't spell URL uh, when I first got a website. I mean, this was all foreign to me, but it evolved progressively and incrementally. And so a changing vision is not a bad thing. In Mars Hill's case, it did change from a little church that they started with a few hundred people to 15,000 uh, plus people. And so that's the idea of a changing vision, which does not have to be a bad thing. And then number three, this idea of single-mindedness, which is really what, when a church plants, uh, they are very much single-minded. And CT shared several stories about how excited and how different and how compelling the new church was. Those are all common characteristics of a new church. It is exciting. Everybody has a hand on the trowel. Everybody's grabbing a brick, and we're building a wall. It's exciting. It's different from what we just came from. It's compelling. And everyone was focusing on the newness of the church or the differences between this plant and their experiences. And then you have a charismatic, dynamic leader who can channel these energetic folks into a missional force. 
And that's what you had. And they were in the honeymoon period of the church plant. I mean, just to put a label on it, those early years, those first five, six years, that was the honeymoon period. They were exalting the features, and they were overlooking the flaws because everybody was excited and stuff was happening. And then C.T. talked about how this early church enthusiasm, it made the dysfunction, the future dysfunction and the demise all the more painful. Well, of course it does. I understand. But see, dysfunction always comes after the honeymoon period. Think about your marriage. I mean, it's very similar. It's analogous to this church plant. I mean, it's exciting, and it's different, and it's compelling. And you're on the honeymoon phase of your marriage, and then you get home. Well, any divorced couple could testify about the pain of where they are when thinking about the promise of how it all began. And so C.T. talked to people who really struggled uh, with this And the missing point is that trouble will come. Trouble always comes. And you can't overlook the flaws. If you overlook the flaws of what's going going on in the relationship, whether it's a church or a marriage, if you do that, uh, then that pain will be even more severe. There is a naivete to think otherwise and detrimental if you don't plan to work through the eventual conflict. Now, I realize that some people at Mars Hill at that time, uh, Mike interviewed who spoke out against some of the flaws, and Mike interviewed uh, a lady who I guess her role was like an executive assistant to uh, Mark Driscoll, And she was gossiping about Mark. Uh, Cosper doesn't say that. But in another context, she was gossiping. The way he presented it, she was gossiping about Mark. And then Mark and another pastor called her in, and they they fired her. And then they fired her for being heretical. I mean, that on his face is just wild. And she was she was devastated to it, but she did, uh, in her own way, speak out against uh, some of the flaws that she saw in the church. And there were others who did that as well. And so I'm not saying that no one spoke out. Uh, several people did. But it's important for us to know uh, that there will always be problems, and we need a sin plan. We need the courage, and we need the awareness to speak into the madness of our relationships, whether it's our marriage, our family, our our churches, because in the beginning, you will be single-minded, uh, but we have to understand the doctrine of sin. The flaws will eventually rise to the top, and there has to be a many discussions about this, and there there has to be a process of working through conflict. Now, unfortunately, as it appears, Mark Driscoll became the de facto authority, and the congregation, for the most part, for the most part, did not have the courage or the awareness to speak into uh, his madness. And because, and I talked about this in the previous podcast, that when you highlight charisma over a character or you highlight personality over authority of Scripture, 
you're going to set up a charismatic authoritarian. And once that happens, it's going to be really hard to speak out against that, or you'll be like this executive assistant. When you do say something, you will lose your job. Number four is this idea of caricature leaders, caricature leaders. They said that Mark Driscoll was a provocateur, uh, which is true. He, he is a provocateur. And what's interesting is, is that most pastors are not like this. Mark Driscoll is a flash-in-the-pan, celebrity-craving individual. Virtually every good pastor that you know, there's exceptions, I understand, but virtually every good pastor that you know are not like this. They are not flashes in the pan. They are not provocateurs. I mean, think about, like, this is my pastor. He's a provocateur. I mean, that's crazy. Most pastors are bland. They really are. They're just bland people. They don't draw attention to themselves, as I talked about in my episode two review, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. In Mark's world, and that's why I say he was a caricature leader, he was always on the increase, and Christ slowly decreased. A caricature provocateur-type leaders, they are fads. They fame up, flame up quickly, or fame up. <laughs> they fame up quickly, and they go away just as quickly. They make a lot of noise. They build a following, but they do not typically have longevity. And someone said that early on uh, in this particular episode. They said, this guy, and I don't remember the exact quote, but this guy is going to have a mighty fall. And that's what happened happens with celebrity pastors and caricature leaders. And and one of the ways, and this is not foolproof, but one of the ways that, I mean, you could just look on your church's website, and if the most prominent thing on the church's website is the pastor, uh, I would look into that. Uh, but a lot of these big mega church type things, they have their pastor on the, the header of the homepage of the website because that's what they are promoting. That is the draw. He must increase, the pastor, and Jesus must decrease. Now, again, that's not an absolute across the board, but I have seen a lot of that with people uh, like this. And, of course, uh, Driscoll's Church in Arizona currently, as of this podcast, it looks like that as well. Uh, he's a caricature leader uh, that's not built for longevity, and of course, uh, that was the case. And so thank God for your bland pastor, uh, and just thank God for him. That's a person that doesn't want the attention, doesn't need the attention. He's not a provocateur. He's just doing the mundane work of pastoring your souls. Number five is this false conflation, which I talked about at the top of the podcast. This is so far the most troubling part, and that's CT's disdain for Reformed theology. There is a theme of anti-Reformed theology throughout the series. They talk about the Reformed folks, quote, as little boys with father wounds. CT does not explain sound doctrine, but implies that Reformed theology is wrong because Mark has issues. Conflating a lousy pastor, 
as Mark Driscoll is, and Reformed theology, it is careless and it is agenda-driven. Mark stood for some good things that the Bible teaches. It's careless and it's lazy to clump everything into the basin and toss it out with the bathwater. And I just appeal to you not to do that, not to clump everything. Everything that a person does is not bad, and everything that a person does is not good. We need discernment. Then finally, number six is one-sided stories. And I want to be careful here, but it is essential to know that most of the stories that CT tells in this series are only from one perspective. Now, I do believe they said they tried to reach out to uh, Mark Driscoll to uh, get his thoughts on this, but and that hasn't happened, if that's what they attempted to do, but it hasn't happened at this point. And so virtually every story is from one perspective. And I am not saying those stories are untrue. I have no reason to doubt any of them. But the discerning listener, you know that all accounts have two sides. Now, you can listen with charity, you can listen with belief, but you cannot set aside discernment. And this is a complicated thing that I'm, I'm saying, but it has to be said, uh, because I mean, I've been doing counseling for a quarter of a century, and when someone comes and tells me a story, I believe them, but I also know as I believe them that there's more to the story. And so we don't shut down discernment. And so as you listen to this series, if you shut down discernment, you'll make that mistake. I do think it's instructive that Mike continues to interview folks who do not stand for the gospel or sound theology. I'm not suggesting that every person he talks to is that way, but there is a growing disparity between sound and unsound individuals presenting in this series. Doug Paget from the Emergent Church fame was one of those in this episode. Christianity Today's worldview is very, very clear in this series. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.